Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. I'm so glad to be with you here this morning. My name is Erin Herman. I've been coming to City Church for about eight years um, with my husband, Zach. And I am so excited to jump into this sermon series as we're going through the kingdom of God all year at City Church. So this morning, our focus is going to be this. We're going to look at how the cross and the resurrection connect with the kingdom of God. Uh, We're part of a life group here at City Church. That's for you, Pastor Keith. Um, We have been going to a life group for a while now, and we meet over in the Fry Spring neighborhood. And as we were closing out life group this week, um, one of the guys in our life group was sharing a story with us about the white deer that hangs out in the Fifth Street, Fry Spring, maybe even Johnson Village area. Have you guys seen this, like, perfectly white deer? I'm getting some nods. Turns out it's not an albino deer. Did you guys know that? Because it doesn't have a pink nose or, or red eyes. It has a brown nose. Theories are it could be a piebald deer, but I Googled that, and that's kind of a pigmentation issue. This is a pure white deer. And so the guy in our life group was saying that the first time he saw this deer, he was leaving his neighborhood early one morning on the way to work. It's pitch black outside, and when he saw this deer kind of crossing in front of his car, he turned off the lights just to get a clearer picture of it because it was that striking. It stood out that much. It was so odd. But I've seen this deer a lot. She's kind of a part of my life now. She's been traipsing through my backyard at times. I snapped a few pictures of her. One time I was eating outside with friends for dinner and we spotted the deer in the backyard and she was looking at us, we were looking at her, felt like we were having dinner together. But it is odd. It is a striking thing to see. Um, And when we think about how striking it is, we actually learned that there have been conversions of two saints that have seen white stags and have been led to follow the Lord because of how kind of odd this image is. And so as we look at the cross this morning, and the the reason this deer connects to the cross for me is that sometimes we don't remember how odd the image of the cross is in the life of the Christian church. I was on staff with Kai Alpha for several years, and a couple years ago, a student was reading through the gospel for the very first time, and she was coming to all these realizations about how Jesus was this wonderful, compelling teacher. And she gets to the end of the gospel, and she turns to her core group leader and says, wait, he dies? And it should be shocking to us. The good news is that's not the end of the story, and she read on. But what should stand out to us is that it really does seem striking that a core fundamental belief of the Christian life is that Jesus died, that our leader died. And so if that doesn't shock you this morning, if that doesn't seem out of place or odd, I'd love to try to imagine together what it would be like to hear that for the very first time and to look at the cross and to wonder how does this match up with our understanding of Christ as king a king who chose to die. So we're going to turn to some scriptures this morning. It was no mistake on Jesus' part, and it was not an unfortunate conclusion to his ministry. This was his plan altogether. So first, what's the first part we want to know about the relationship between the kingdom and the cross? 
The gospel writers are really clear that Jesus is crucified because he claimed to be king. It wasn't about his miracles and it wasn't about his teachings. Lots of people across history have been impressed by those two things. But it was this claim that he was king. And so we've been looking at this scripture from Mark 1.15 that says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And it's interesting that the three of the gospels start this way. It's very clear that the core of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. But even more so, Jesus throughout his teaching and throughout his ministry on earth, he gathers 12 disciples around him, which would have been the, the reconnection of the 12 tribes of Israel. He speaks to them and says, as they unroll the scroll of Isaiah, today this prophecy is fulfilled in my hearing, claiming to be the Messiah. And so as we look at this word, good news, we return to this Greek word, euangelion. I believe that Peter said that better than I did, but why don't we say it together? Euangelion. One more time. Euangelion. Thank you guys for joining me in that. And the word is translated gospel or good news. And this was a good news that was reserved for the announcement of kings. The birth of a king, the victory of a king, the winning of a war. This was to talk about a world-changing event. And so as these gospels start out with this good news of Jesus Christ, they are telling us this is a world-changing event. Jesus is king. So Mark, as he, read, as he writes to us to, uh, in the gospel of Mark, he's actually writing to a Roman audience. And so how interesting is it that as he's writing to a Roman audience, He's trying to tell them throughout the gospel that this is king, a king who died. They're aware of Jesus' death. They know about his conviction and his murder. And yet he's saying, no, this wasn't a defeat. This was a victory. How does he do that? We'll come back to that. It's really interesting also to look back at the, before Jesus speaks a word or performs one miracle, that he is still proclaimed to be king. Matthew 2 says this, that the Magi go to Herod and they ask him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And King Herod replies, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And so Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, receives this dream that he has to escape to Egypt with his family because Herod was gonna search for the boy and kill him. And Matthew records, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. You see, in this announcement that there's this other king present in Herod's land, he becomes immediately threatened, immediately threatened, and this is kind of the model for how we see that the empire always responds. As soon as there's a threat to power, empire jumps on it, threatened by it, tries to squash it out, disrupted by the presence of this rightful king. So from this very moment of Jesus' birth to his last steps on the cross, he is a threat to the Roman government. Have you guys seen Inception? Okay, okay, great. There's this kind of eerie scene at the beginning where Leo, 
Leonardo DiCaprio. I wasn't expecting it. I don't know him like that. Uh, <laughs> but let's go with it. He's explaining to the, to the other lead that um, as they're entering into this dream state, they're, they're in this dream state and they can change everything about their physical world, world around them. They get to make cities turn 90 degrees on an angle. They get to, to change their space because they're trying to infiltrate the dream and drop a new idea inside of the dream. But as they're doing this, they start noticing as she's kind of figuring out that the world around them can, can be altered, that people start staring at her. And then people start kind of gathering around her and they become aggressive towards her and they become more and more violent. And so they snap out of the dream and it's explained to her that they notice that there's an invader. And so the subconscious kind of starts reacting because it's so disrupted. And I wonder if it's kind of that same way as we look at the gospel, that as Jesus steps into his earthly ministry, it's very apparent to the worldly powers that something is disrupted. They can't con contain this. They can't keep the status quo. Things are changing. And so it's not just a ministry gone awry or people like his message one day, don't like his message the next. It's from the very beginning of the Gospels that he is proclaimed as king and he becomes a threat to Rome. N.T. Wright describes this as the clash of kingdoms, which I found interesting. The story of Jesus is the story of the conf confrontation between God's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom. And ultimately, it's a story of the victory of God's kingdom. It's the opposition between a kingdom that will always choose violence, dominance, and oppression, and a kingdom that will always choose self-sacrifice and love and peace. And so Jesus is sure that his journey will take him to the cross. And why is that? I want to point out that second, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus becomes king on the cross. And that's not to say that Jesus wasn't already the rightful king, but I want to point out that in the gospel of Mark, he's telling us that his crucifixion is his coronation. His crucifixion is his coronation. And sometimes we miss this because we often think of the cross as our personal salvation, which it is. But it is also talking about this world-changing event where the kingdom is ushered in and our king is enthroned. And so I want to take you through the, the Gospel of Mark and the passage that speaks to this. Today we're going to be settling into Mark 15 together. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. We'll, we'll be there soon, I promise. But if you're familiar with the, the Older Testament, the Newer Testament, Jesus, uh, God has come up against these big empires. First, his people were enslaved to Egypt. Then they were exiled in Babylon. So we come to this next empire, this ultimate battle against Rome, the superpower of the world. And it's as if God is saying, this is the final battle. This is where I will show that I am victorious and my glory reigns. This is the coronation of a king. So if you're interested in looking at this later, I uh, looked up some stuff from Marty Solomon, who uh, does the Bema podcast, and his research um, from Ray Vanderlaan. And so this is really striking. So first I'm going to tell you a little bit about what coronation day would have looked like to a Roman emperor. And then second, we're going to go to the text. And I wonder if you'll notice all the similarities 
but I also want you to notice all of the differences. So in a Roman procession, as a new Caesar would be enthroned, first, the procession would start with the Roman victor surrounded by the Praetorian Guard. This guard would have been something similar to the President's Secret Service. This were the people who were tasked with protecting the Caesar, and they were stabilizing his power. Nobody could touch Caesar because the Praetorian Guard was surrounding him. Then the Caesar would be robed with a purple robe declaring his royalty and be crowned with a, a wreath of laurel. After that, they would call out to the Caesar in ceremony, celebrating him as Lord and King because they believed that the Caesar was divine. Wine and myrrh would be given to the Caesar, an expensive delicacy fit for this kind of day, the enthronement of a king. And as the Caesar finished the parade and as he stepped up onto the throne, he stands with the high priest on one side and his commander on the other, declaring the power of both religion and military might. And he sits there enthroned as the new king of Rome, as a new superpower of the world, as a new divine being. I bet if you're familiar with the story, you can already see some similarities, but it is wild when you look at the text, so I'm excited to look at this together. Starting in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. We're going to continue in verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Jesus is escorted by the same Roman guard that protects the Caesar. He is dressed in robes and given a crown of thorns, mocking his claim of kingship. They say, hail, king of the Jews, not realizing the irony in their mouths. They give him wine and myrrh, and we know with how expensive they were that this was not typically offered to prisoners, a not-so-subtle sign of their mockery. And over the cross, the sign to all who passed by was the charge for so gruesome a punishment that he claimed to be king of the Jews. 
and upon Jesus' enthronement, seated on his right and his left, two rebels at his side as if Rome is shouting, these two have tried and failed to overcome Rome. What we're meant to see here is at the very moment that the Roman soldiers and the mocking crowd believe they're putting out this voice that said that there was a different way than Rome, Jesus is proclaiming victory over these worldly kingdoms and he has won. This is Jesus' victory, not his defeat. Jesus is accepting this, he doesn't fight it because he is confident that this is actually the way that his kingdom will come. This is his kingdom breaking out. This is the culmination of his ministry. This is the day that he sits on the throne. Because it's not today just that the powers of Rome are being overthrown, it's the way Rome does it. You see, Rome's procession would say, this is the most violent man, this is the one who has dominated, killed, and destroyed. As Rome is being built up, we have to understand that everybody else is being taken down. But instead, Jesus says, the only peace is through me. The greatest victory is not of killing or dominating, but by, through, by and through sacrifice. Guys, this is why it's Good Friday. It's not a mistake. We don't just look at the resurrection and think that's an overtime victory, but something went wrong. This is the victory. Jesus is saying that in the cross, we don't have to live as Rome, that he has given us a new way in his kingdom. He has given us the way of the cross. Can we say amen to that? So as we move forward, I wanna ask us as a church, what is our response to the kingdom? There are kind of two examples that we see here, two ways that the people that are around Jesus respond to this. One is that there is no king but Caesar. You see, when Herod or Caesar consider Jesus, they respond like Caesar. They respond in the way they always do through violence because to be successful means dominance and defeat. And even the Jewish leaders at the time say no king but Caesar. We'll turn to John, 18, John 19. And Pilate says to them, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This Jesus threatens the status quo, not just for Rome, but also for these Jewish leaders. And I have to wonder, did they think that they were gonna be sacrificing something of their social status, something of their bank account, something of their own dominance over the Jewish community. So I have to wonder for us today, do we define power as our own strength, our own dominance, our own positions of power, or do we believe that there is another way? And so the second way that I see in the text 
is that as these other voices echo out mockery over Jesus, say there is no way but Caesar, that at Jesus' last breath, a Roman centurion looks up and says, surely this man was the son of God. This man wearing the full Roman uniform has to know that when he says, surely this man is the son of God, the king, that everything about his life and everything about the way that he's ordered it is going to change. Because he knows and he has given this picture of a more perfect way of patience, of kindness, of seeking the best for others and not for ourselves. He has shown them that if they can trust Jesus for their provision and their protection, honor others and not envy them, that there might be another way. So as Jesus is lifted up as king, he invites us into that same thing. As the kingdom of God ushers forward and as the resurrection tells us, this is true. We get to live life differently. We get unending life with Jesus and we know that he is king. I believe that it's an invitation to us to live differently. And even though I believe that this is a world-changing event, that this is a moment in history that changes everything, I also believe that this is an everyday decision for us. I told you guys last time I was up here that I had just taken a job. Um, I didn't tell you guys that the three months or two months before that were the worst. They were the worst. If you've looked for a job before, nobody is like, everyone was like, yeah, it is bad. And I was like, yeah, it was. But I had a friend at the time that was kind of going through the same thing, and we know each other well, so we would kind of swap job posts back and forth and help each other out. Sometimes we would meet for coffee and just encourage one another. And it was a good thing. But I sent her a job post one day for a company that I had hoped to work at. And it wasn't the position I like, really wanted, but I thought she could be a good fit for it. So I sent it her way. And then immediately, it was like my heart seized up because I was like, well, what if I needed that job? And I gave it to her and there probably won't be other jobs anywhere else ever. That might have been it and I gave it to her. And I kind of talked myself down from that, but we're back at Life Group that week, Pastor Keith. <laughs> and we were reading through the story of Cain and Abel and it's fascinating in that story that just as Cain thinks that there's nothing that he can do right in front of God, that's the exact moment when he doesn't feel like God has him securely, that he kills his brother, that he has to snuff out the threat. There's nothing that he can do to feel safe and secure other than to shut it down. And I found myself reading that text thinking, is that not really similar to how my heart was so worried and so fearful that it felt like the only option was to protect myself and not give something to my friend. And so I wonder if the kingdom of God truly is coming in our families, in our friendships, and in our workplaces as we believe that our God is really a God of provision, that our God really does offer us a different way of doing things. And each time you say the kind word instead of the word of gossip, and each time you offer forgiveness instead of holding a heart of bitterness, Every time we do that, do we allow the kingdom of God to move forward? Those are the moments that I believe we say, this truly is the son of God, rather than there is no king but Caesar.
And so I want to ask you guys as we close, I'd love to invite the worship team up. Do you believe that peace really does win over violence? Do you believe that forgiveness really does win over bitterness? And do you believe that living, trusting that God will take care of you really does make you strong and not foolish? And I want to ask as we close in prayer that your prayer this morning would be for the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart and to give you an opportunity this week to practice that in a moment where you feel like you just want to shut things down, that God would give you open hands to say the kingdom of God really is here. Jesus is the son of God. Put away the way of Caesar and trust Jesus. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, but you're checking this out, I wanna invite you this morning, if this sounds compelling, if you've only felt like you've been living the way of Caesar, you've only seen the way of Caesar operating in the world, would you choose to stay a little longer and to explore through community the way of the kingdom of God? Just to open your heart up to it, just to see if it's real, just to see if it could actually change your life or the lives around you. So would you guys pray with me as we close this morning? God, we invite you into this space. Lord, we believe that Good Friday is good news. It wasn't by accident. Lord, we see you enthroned and we want to lift your name higher. Would you give us your strength by the power of your spirit to live life where we believe that Jesus is the son of God, where we choose the path of the cross, even when it feels foolish, believing that it is true strength. God, we open our hearts to you this morning and ask for you to give us words of love for one another, that you would bring to mind ways in which we can do this differently, Jesus. Do this the way you would do this, Lord knowing that this is the victory and you are the king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.